Blog Talk Radio. Again, this is her second visit with us. Good evening, Barbara. Are you still with me? I'm delighted to be here with you, Rev. Chris. Awesome. We're still connected. That's a good thing. (laughs) I'm calling in from Ecuador, so people need to be very patient with the technology. Exactly. Um, And my connection's been kind of hinky for the last I don't know how long. So one or both of us might disappear at one point in time during the show. We'll just have to reconnect if that happens. Uh, But the last time we had you on, Barbara, we were talking primarily about your fiction books. Yes. And we just barely, I mean, there's a lot of it touched upon in your books, but we just kind of barely touched upon the topic of shamanism. And that's more or less what we're going to be talking about this evening, correct? Absolutely. It's a del- it's the topic that's closest to my heart, Rev <laughs> Uh 
Well, let's see here. Uh, for a good portion of November this year, you were on a pilgrimage. Is that correct? I sure was, from November 1st until November 15th. Um, yeah, so first, half the month. Half, half the month. And uh, I have to say that so rich and intense that it felt like we'd been gone years rather than just a couple of weeks. You know how when you're present to whatever is going on, um, it stretches time and so much happens and there's so many layers that it's hard to believe what a short time it was. I can only imagine. Uh, I know when I go on my journeys to visit uh, family out in Colorado that it seems like at one instant I've been there for a week when it's only been a day, and at the next mm -hmm. instant it's like I haven't been here near long enough. It's like I just got here an hour ago, didn't I? Oh, no, that was right. Wednesday. Today's Saturday. Right. <laughs> it's that quality of mindfulness. It really does add depth to every moment that we're alive. It also gives us more information than we can get any other way, and it just is a practice that connects us with ourselves, with divine source, and with all the living beings that are around us. Mm. Uh, how many of you were on this uh, pilgrimage? This was a small group. There were <clears throat> two soul sisters with me. We had um, a young man from Cuenca who was our guide for the first week, which was in Bolivia. The second week was guided by a dear friend of mine who's lived in Urubamba for over a dozen years. And <clears throat> they both made the process much simpler for us because we were able to trust their, um, their Spanish and well as their English, their knowledge of the area, their connections with people, so that we could focus on the spiritual aspects and just really set, settle into the process of the pilgrimage. Mm. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if it was a uh, guided pilgrimage experience for you because it's not the first time you've been on it, is it? Yes, this is the first time I've been to Bolivia and Peru. It's, it's rather interesting because I've been studying Andean shamanism for 20 years. And mm -hmm. most of that time I lived in the U.S. I've now lived in Ecuador for four years. And it just seemed like this was the first time that it was the right time. I did not want to be part of a large group. I wanted it to be an intimate experience with people that I knew were on the same spiritual wavelength. And it might be valuable right now, Rivkes, for us to talk about what's different between a pilgrimage and just an ordinary trip. Yeah, that would probably be a very good thing. <clears throat> Do you have any concept of the difference yourself? Well, a, a regular trip to me is just like, okay, I'm going to go visit this place and this place and, ex and you know, try to experience some of the local foods and the local culture, while a pilgrimage is all of that, but on a much deeper level. 
a much that's, spiritual that's right. connected level. Yes. For for me, the difference between the pilgrimage and just an ordinary trip is the intention to connect deeply with the place, the energies of the place, with the people who have been holding the sacred energies there for a long time, and experiencing what it is like to surrender to the energies and the sacredness of a place that's different. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it definitely makes sense. At least it does to me. I hope it does to our listeners. Well, I suspect your audience is familiar with this sort of thing since, since you um, are on a spiritual wavelength yourself. So the reason that we set things up the way we did which was to go to Bolivia first and go to Lake Caca, was to follow the legend about the birth of the Incas. According to the ancient legend, the mother and the father of the Incas came from Lake Titicaca. The father came from the island of the sun. The mother came from the island of the moon. And together they went and founded Cusco as the, the heart of the Incan Empire. So it was our intention from the very beginning to follow this path and just to see what we could learn. Because, of course, that's been many, many hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And, the, and their energies have changed. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what we found, we, we, we went into Pichilapaz first, which is a beautiful city, very, very high, um, and one of the things that I found the most intriguing about La Paz was its location. It's in the, a, a little valley amongst these really high peaks. And even in the city itself, amongst all the buildings, are amazing raw rock formations that look almost like castles. So it has a little bit of an otherworldly appearance to it as well as looking like both a historic city and a very modern city. We really enjoyed it. Went the first day went to the different markets, to the witches' market, the shaman's market, looking at the <coughs> what the indigenous people there still hold to be valuable. Beautiful stuff. So that was kind of getting us acclimated because, of course, La Paz is extremely high and... You have to be kind of careful when you go from lower altitudes to higher altitudes. There can be health consequences. So we let ourselves adapt and actually had no trouble at all. The, the first day outside of La Paz, we went to Tiwanaka, which is in the Alto Plano of Bolivia. Tiwanaka honors Wiracocha, who's the god of the staff. And what I found interesting about that is that Wiracocha is an element of all of the Andean mesas. And, of course, as you remember, the mesa is what we call um, the Andean healing altar. And it has directions, as, as most altars and most medicine wheels do, and each direction is associated with not only the, the cosmic view, so... Say, for example, the south is earth and the west is water and 
oceans and the north is air and spirit and the east is fire and mind. It also relates personally. So the self that is earth is also the human body, the physical being. And the west that is the emotions and the moon and the oceans is also the human emotional system. North is the human spirit, the human mind. So all of these things are very, very layered. Wirtakocha in the Andean tradition lives in the north, in the land of spirit, where the element is air and the spirit animals are the winged ones. And it's, it was interesting for me personally because Wirtakocha is not, in my mind, creator. Creator, divine source, is so big and so vast that everything in the universe is creator, is source, is love. But Wirtakocha is an energy of supporting that, the energy. I've, I've begun to think of Wirtakocha almost as a form of the Christ consciousness, as a form of the Buddha mind, um, an intermediary between our human experience and our direct link to divine source. That was very profound for me. In Tiwanaka, the, one of the primary um, artifacts is a, a stone carving that's about 30 feet tall that um, is very, very ancient. It spent some time in La Paz outside of a sports stadium until they realized that um, there seemed to be some negativity around having it there, and it was returned to its original place in Tiwanaka, where they have set up museums, uh, a museum with many of the artifacts that is right by the ruins of the temple that was there. It's an exquisite place, and the energy is still very alive. This was the first place that we did ceremony. And since there were four of us, it worked out beautifully. We just settled onto a little bit of dirt right in front of the ruins of the temple, and we made a little altar. In this situation, we, the, um, our guide, our, our Nico, was in the north. Um, I'm sorry, he was not. He was in the east, and I was in the north, and two, the two other ladies were in the south and the west, respectively. And we began our ceremony this way, and through all the time that we were on the pilgrimage, those were the positions that we held in each of our ceremonies. Have you heard anything about Tiwanaka or the Altoplano of Bolivia? Uh, not a whole lot, to be perfectly honest. Um, what I am most familiar with is what you know people are going to find in fiction books or picking up the encyclopedia. Well, I guess that kind of dates me. Going online and looking in the encyclopedia. <laughs> we can say you're looking at Wikipedia, and that way nobody will know. There we go, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, The research that I did... A little over a year and a half ago for a book did not go that direction. I was uh, going more towards uh, um, 
Cusco and all of that. So I'm not all that familiar with every place and everything. Sure. Well, there's there's so much, Phil, that we could be studying from now until till the ascension and, mm-hmm. and probably not be able to uh, begin to grasp all of it. It was new no. to me, too. I did not have a lot of knowledge about Tiwanaka, but I related very definitely to it. And I felt as if it was kind of an answer to prayer. You know, I've been wondering, who actually is Weirdokocha? This this strange being that I've heard, I've recited his name in activating um, shamanic mesas, but I've never really had a direct experience of the energy around this this being, and that's what came through for me in, in the actual physical place of Tiwanaku. Um, I feel like I have developed a uh, personal connection with this being, this field of energy and intention, and I intend to to develop more of it, to, to learn what he has to teach me and to, to honor his place in history, even though we don't know that much about him or what he did. You can feel in the energy and the reverence of the indigenous people there the importance that this being has had on human consciousness. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to follow along with your journey by using Google Maps. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let's look these places okay, up. Okay, there so, we go. <laughs> so this is going to make it real easy. Find on Google Maps, find Lake Titicaca. Because yeah, that is I've got a that there. body of water, you know, very mm-hmm. similar to one of the great lakes in North America. Mm-hmm. It is so large that there are um, cargo ships that go around the perimeter of the lake taking goods and things that people need from one spot to another. We, we went to there the, the following day. We went to Copacabana and took the, bu- um, the boat to the Island of the Sun. And that was <clears throat> the next place that we did ceremony, was in the actual Temple of the Sun on the Day of the Sun, so on Sunday. So we're trying to align ourselves with what we know of the story of the past and the energies that we live in. <clears throat> there was a lot of synchronicity, and I think this is one of the validations of any kind of a pilgrimage or a sacred journey. Things happen that tell you that the spirits are watching, the spirits are appreciating your presence and your intention, and they give you a little bit of help now and then. So we got to the Island of the Sun, which only has about 500 million steps to get up the very steep hillsides to where the village is perched up high. Beautiful. (laughs) Very beautiful place. At altitude because it's really, really high. It's, if I remember correctly, about 12,000 feet or more. And when you're going up those steps, and this was one of my lessons from the time I spent on the island of the sun small steps and breathe. Small steps and breathe. Because otherwise, your heart's going to burst and your lungs too. <laughs> it's very interesting to 
to visit an island where there's no cars. The, uh, they have burrows to, to take suitcases up to the hospital, which, for which we were extremely grateful. We never would have made it up those steps with our, our suitcases. And we got and signed in to the hostel that we had observed online. And this was the kind of synchronicity that I'm talking about. We discovered as we were checking in that the gentleman and his wife who run this particular hostel, he's an Amara shaman. Now, the Amara people are the ones who have lived on the island of the sun for generations and generations. So that was a real gift and a real blessing. The first night we were there, he offered to do a coca ceremony with us, which was a great privilege and a great honor. Who um, aware that at altitude in both Bolivia and Peru and probably other places, they chew coca leaves as a stimulant and it adds some nutrition, too, that helps people function really well at high altitude. Yeah. It's, it's so important that it's actually a law in Bolivia that people are allowed to drink coca tea. They're allowed to chew coca leaves. It's not illegal at all. It's essential to the functioning of the society, and it has nothing to do with with drugs like cocaine. So mm -hmm. It's part of their tradition for years and years. And because it's so important, the coca plant is honored in ceremonies, invoked in ceremonies. And you can feel the difference. You can feel the aliveness from just drinking a little bit of tea or chewing a little bit of a dried leaf. It doesn't taste all that good. It's not a wonderful <laughs> flavor, but the benefits are extraordinary. <clears throat> Martine is the name of the gentleman who was who runs that particular hostel. A very gentle, kind, humble man. Um, restaurant section of his hostel has religious symbols from east as well as as, the, as South America. He had uh, diagrams for chakras. He had beautiful, beautiful pieces of art all over the place. So we knew we were in the right place. It sounds like it. Yes, it was. The, the Temple of the Sun is right on the, the edge of the island down near the water level. And when you're standing in the Temple of the Sun, you look across the water and you see the Temple of the Moon. And right behind the Temple of the Moon is a line of magnificent mountaintops that are snow-covered. This kind of alignment is a very important energy pathway. Now, one of the things Martine told us was that the energy on the Island of the Sun had it had begun to die, apparently. And he and his teacher have been working to reactivate it. And I think this is an important thing for us to be aware of, that places do have energy, and that energy can be 
enhanced and it can also be diminished. And when enough people go somewhere without a sacred intention, then they're taking from the place. Maybe they're not giving to the place. So part of our intention and ceremony was to give to these sacred places. And that's what we did on the Island of the Sun. Actually, Nico was very dedicated to it. He went to the Temple of the Sun and did ceremony every single morning we were there. In spite of the fact that we might be doing another ceremony later in the day, either on that island or on the island of the moon. And we could feel the difference. We could feel that each ceremony created a little bit more energy for the next ceremony. So there was a cumulative effect as we were doing these ceremonies. And in each situation, it's a very simple thing. We're not being obtrusive. We're not um, showing off. We're finding a quiet little corner where we can sit together, where we can make a little altar in front of us, and where we can talk with the spirits of the place. And we can appreciate them, and we can um, offer our gratitude, and we can ask for teachings and lessons and blessings. Has that been your experience when you've done a pilgrimage? Yeah, I like I have said before, I haven't really done what you've done as a pilgrimage. Um, I, you could kind of call going back to where I grew up with the intention of reconnecting to the land to be a pilgrimage um, and trying to you know, even though it had only been a short period of time, so much had changed. Uh, trying to be able to overlap the memory with what was actually still there and understand the whole transition. The uh, the small area that I grew up in, uh, rural Colorado, the well, the the property that my family owns that I grew up on has changed so much. The house that my mother and her sister were raised in and that I was raised in doesn't even stand anymore. There's only like two buildings left that were there from when I was a kid. One of them, I think, was there when my mother was a kid. But the rest of it has changed so much. And, you know, there's modular housing there now because of my cousins who decided they wanted to live there, which is great to keep the family there. But it's like, this is not, but it is where I grew up. Yeah. It, and how does that make you feel? How does it feel in your heart? Um, I was, when I was there, I was sad and happy, if yes. that makes sense. You know, I was yes. sad because there was nothing really left, but I was happy because I could remember. I did a little exploring, and I, you know, I found a uh, a stone that I used to play with as like a three or four year old. It wow. now sits on my fireplace mantle. That's exciting. Wow. I brought home a uh, a branch from one of the trees as well because I wanted to have some kind of a uh, um, organic connection, even though there was barely anything left there from when I was a kid. I understand what you're saying. Um 
it, it's so classic that we we can't go home again and that we can't return to the way things were. And when we mm-hmm. go to a place that was special, um, we have both the familiarity with the place and the memories that are attached to it. And we also have the sense of change and loss. And I that's why you felt both joy and sadness. Now, in this situation, of course, we've never been there before. So this this was not a, a sacred place to us in terms of familiarity, at least not on the physical level. But mm-hmm. our intention in the pilgrimage being to connect with the land and connect with the sacred places in the land, I um, a little bit of an entree that, that we might not have had otherwise. And then there are lessons that happen as you're going through the process. <clears throat> For example, the day after we did our first ceremony at the Temple of the Sun on Sunday, we were going to go to the Temple of the Moon, which is on the island of the Moon, just a short boat ride away from the um, island of the Sun. So we had hired a fisherman to to take us in the boat. We didn't want to do the big tourist thing. And Nico and one of my friends um, went down to make sure the boat was there and everything was online. And my other friend and I started off after them. And somehow or another, we missed the turnoff for the pass. We got almost to the... we, We got within maybe a hundred yards of the shore and saw that we were in the wrong place because we weren't supposed to be that close to the water. You can't get to the Temple of the Sun along the coast. You have to go along up the steps and along the path. Now, if you've never seen a photograph of the Bolivian Mountains or the the Temple of the Island of of the Sun, you don't know that there's terraces all up and down these very steep slopes. They're beautifully done. I can't imagine how much work it took them to do that because, of course, they were doing it without any kind of power tools. These were all handmade by people who lived on the island. The the terraces themselves are very easy to walk along. That's where they grow their, their crops. But some of the transitions from one terrace to another can get a little tricky. They can be a little high or narrow. And so we have a couple of, we'll say, very mature ladies climbing around this mountainside trying to get back to the path, being frustrated. Oh, my God. had 
some chocolate caramel candies, which kind of saved our lives because we kind of got so tired that we needed the extra sugar energy. And it turned out <coughs> later that that was apparently part of the process. That was leaving behind some of the heaviness, some of the frustration and the anger, the things that all of us humans experience when we have obstacles to what we want to accomplish. And just because you're on a pilgrimage, just because you're on sacred work, doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to go smoothly. Or at least it's our perception that things are not always going smoothly. And that can be part of the process. Because the process is changing us as we are doing the pilgrimage. Have you had that kind of experience? In a manner of speaking, yeah. I typically, when I go to visit um, with my spiritual family, um, I typically find that along the journey, because I'm driving alone most of the time, um, that I'm leaving certain weight behind. It's like, you know, it's, this is, the family time, this is the spiritual time, this is not the work time, this is not the worry time, and those things get kind of left behind, and yeah, on the way back home, I tend to pick some of them up, try not to pick so many of the worries back up, but you know, i got to pick the work back up by the time I get home. (laughs) Yes. Well, this apparently was a sort of a clearing and a preparation, and then as you know, sometimes on the spirit, spiritual path you get tested. It's mm-hmm. how, how much do you want this? How important is this to you? Are you going to persevere um, through the difficulties, through the per- frustration to, to follow through on your intention? And, of course, we were. We were committed to it. We were determined to find the path to the Temple of the Sun because we wanted to get to the boat so we could go to the Island of the Moon and do ceremony there for the mother. And it was a test. It was a test. We were pretty exhausted by the time we got down to the Temple of the Sun and the boat that would take us across the waters. And so we were already tired at the beginning. And sometimes that's part of the process, too, because one of the things that happens when you get tired is your defenses get down. And and we all have masks that we use just to to make things smooth through the day as we travel around doing our lives. And sometimes we forget what's behind the mask or who we are behind the mask. And... Part of the value of doing a journey like this with with an intention to be of service is you know you're going to get tired. You know you're going to feel uncomfortable at times. And you have to trust that you're going to be taken care of even during those times. And in this situation, we were. In this situation, we had water and we had um, a little bit of sugar to keep our energy levels up. And we got down to the boat, and we went across the waters to the island of the moon. And interestingly enough, the ruins of the temple there are much more elaborate than the ruins of the Temple of the Sun. 
apparently that is a place where the Inca actually went and all the women on that island were being prepared for special service to the Inca or to the community. And it was a beautiful place, very, very barren now. It's a smaller island. Um, there are about 70 people that live on that island full time, but everything pretty much has to be brought in. <coughs> and yet, the ceremony that we did there, um, we could feel the difference. We could feel the energy building from the, the, the ceremonies we'd done for the sun and now for the moon. And because Sunday and the sun are masculine, Nico had, read, had led that ceremony. The, the island of the moon on Monday was feminine. It was for the feminine. I led that particular ceremony. And as soon as we completed, it was a beautiful ceremony, and everything that we needed was there. And as soon as we got done, <laughs> I got hit with a stomach cramp. Oh. So this was like a continuation. How much do you want to do this? How important is this to you? And fortunately, they they have a, a fairly decent bathroom, restroom right right by the stairs down to the boat because I had to make a, a fairly long stop there on the way back. Managed to get back without too much trouble. <clears throat> and it felt very symbolic. Of the day, we started out with difficulty. For me, it ended up with a little bit of difficulty, and yet it was nothing that was life-threatening. It was more about uh, the spiritual process. It's like you're not taking that stuff home with you. <laughs> and sometimes, uh, you, were. you know, the, the spirits have a sense of humor. Great spirit has a sense of humor. And if you get too and too uptight, they're likely to throw a joke at us. And um, sometimes that's part of the spiritual process, part of our spiritual growth. Yeah, I'm, I'm digesting what you've been saying. No pun intended there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope it's easier on you than it was on me. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, um, wow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> for anybody who may be listening and has pulled up the Google map of the area, um, it's quite amazing to me that um, what's known as the Island of the Sun is so much larger than the Island of the Moon. Just mm -hmm. like the actual physical sun is so much larger than the actual physical moon. Exactly. And I, I should throw in there that um, Martin, the Amara shaman with whom we stayed, um, was describing to us some of the challenges they have on the island of the sun. Um, there are even more sacred sites on the northern part of the island, which is not normally visited used to be able to, used to be able to go on the trails to the north where the, the ruins are that seem to still have even more energy than the Temple of the Sun, which is on the south side of the island. <coughs> but 
the people are split now. There, there's a division between the people who want to take advantage of making money from the tourists who come and the people who want to protect, protect the sacred sites in the north. And apparently it all came to a head when somebody tried to build a hotel on the north end of the island right on a sacred site. They didn't ask anybody, and they just went in there. I don't know, you know if they could buy the land or they just built without it or what, but the people were so upset they burned it down and have since created a barrier so that no tourists are allowed on the northern part of the island again. So this kind of breach in perceptions of what's important happens everywhere and it happens to everybody and uh, it can it can be difficult to deal with I mean these are people all of the people that that live on the island grew up there I mean their families have lived there for many generations so they're mm -hmm. now torn between wanting to be prosperous and have money and wanting to protect their traditions and their sacred sites and it's sad to me that that appears to be a choice. It just makes me sad. It, it, yeah. it strikes me the same way as when I hear about people wanting to mine the Grand Canyon. Yeah, let's leave that like, be. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a violation. You know, a mm -hmm. violation of, of, the mo of the more important... It's not that, that money and prosperity aren't important. It's just they're not nearly as important as soul work. So we had a lovely few days on that island, and we did uh, we did ceremony in most places. Then we got back on the boat, went back to Copacabana, went back to La Paz. <coughs> our, our guide, Nico, flew back to, to Cuenca, and three ladies flew into Cusco where we were met by my dear friend Susan Bookman, who had created an itinerary and a process and had created connections for us with some of the local sound healers and shamans. <clears throat> so that was a beginning of the next phase. First place we went um, was right she she lives in Urubamba. Urubamba is a is a beautiful little town in the Sacred Valley, so it's about an hour's drive from Cusco on a good day. <laughs> they do traffic problems there like they do in many places. But the Sacred Valley um, has terraces that the Incas used for agricultural research. They they planted crops at different elevations see where they would flourish, and then they could tell the people, you know, how to get the best um, return for their investments. And they were beautiful. I mean, they just these layers and layers of terraces sweeping gracefully around the mountainside. So that was the first place that we did ceremony. So now Susan was the leader for this particular ceremony, and we each maintain our directions. The next day we went to Pisac, which is a um, a village a little bit higher in the Andes, not too far from Urubamba. It was about a two-hour drive, and the ruins there are pretty amazing. 
and it's also an artisan town. So there's, uh, and, and they have a wonderful shaman store there where um, we were able to find some pretty amazing medicine objects. Each place <coughs> we went, as I've said, we did ceremony, and then uh, the rest of the day seemed to, to have a lightness about it, it had a blessing about it, even when we got tired. The day after that, we went to a little town called Oyante Tambo, which also had some pretty amazing ruins. There we, we did our ceremony beside a river. And the land around Oyante Tambo is pretty magical. In fact, the energy of that place felt just like the energy of a ranch that I lived on in Colorado before I moved to Ecuador one of my most beloved places in the whole world. So I thought that was pretty significant, and it's given me food for thought as to what makes places feel similar beyond just just the, the physical description of the land, mountains, rivers, trees. There's something that gives it a personality that gives it an essence and this felt sacred, very, very sacred. Sorry, I'm still traveling along on the uh, on the Google map. I, I found where we're at. Okay. Did you find Oyante Tambo? Yes, I did. I believe so. Uh, got the uh, uh, Urabamba River going by it. That's right. That's the river we were working with. <clears throat> well, stay there because we're going to come back to Ayante Tambo when we go to Machu Picchu because that's the only way you can get there. But before okay. we went to Machu Picchu, we went to another sacred site called Kia Ruyok. Kia is the Quechua word for moon, and Rumiok is a place of stones. So this is a valley that's parallel to the sacred valley in Peru. Um, its energy has diminished somewhat because um, people have gotten mostly involved in secular living and not doing the ceremonies the way they used to. Uh, but the place, the place itself is magical. It has some amazing ruins, and there's a, a cave really up high that's actually a temple. The, the energy is totally amazing. Now, we didn't get there. It was too tall for me. I could not climb that high. And uh, so we found a place by the same waterfall, which was the beginning of the ceremonies the indigenous people held there. They, and this was a place for the divine feminine and they would go first into this waterfall to be cleansed, and then they would climb up to the cave for their celebrations. We did our ceremony right in front of the waterfall, which is actually pretty amazing. And again, it was just another, another piece of the puzzle, another enhancement to the ceremony. And... Uh, <clears throat> We have to respect our own capabilities. And I'm a grandmother. 
actually, I think all of us are grandmothers in one way or another, but because um, I'm not going to tell you exactly how old I am, I'll just tell you that um, <laughs> I can't climb up steep hills when I'm already at al- steep mountainsides when I'm already at altitude anymore. And yet the spirits were there. The spirits were there with us. Um, the offerings that we left in the in the in the indentations and the ruins were accepted by the spirits because you can feel it. You can feel when your offerings have been accepted. And we left um, Kiyarumiyoke and went to a little town called Chinchero, which is an artisan's town. One of the things that we made a point of doing on this pilgrimage was when we wanted to, when we saw treasures, buy them from the people that made them. There are amazing textiles and a wide variation in price depending on whether you go to a fancy store in a big city or whether you go into a little makeshift um, courtyard where indigenous people have their booths set up. The work and the way that the sacred symbols are woven into these cloths, the colors, and the energy that the cloths themselves carry. Um, very powerful and very profound. So we all managed to find some really wonderful treasures in Chinchero and felt like we were able to do some some good for the people that had worked so hard to make them. So now we're coming to the big one. Do you know what that is? Hmm. What, is the most, what is the most notorious place in Peru that everyone thinks of? Uh, Machu Picchu? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. We're We're going to Machu Picchu. The way you do that is to take a town, uh, you go to Ollante Tambo and you catch the train. The train takes you to Aguas Calientes, which is the town that's at the base of the road up to Machu Picchu. And It's a charming place, too. Ollante Tambo is charming, and so is Aguas Caliente. (coughs) So we got there um, in late afternoon, and we're ready, uh, spent, had a lovely night, and we're ready to to go up to Machu Picchu the next morning. They, They have it very well organized now because, and they have to because there are so many visitors to Machu Picchu that if they didn't have an organized it would be a disaster and the whole site would be destroyed. They have buses that go up and down. Um, they allow you a four-hour time segment, segment and then you're required to get back on your bus and go back down to Aguas Calientes. <clears throat> and it's plenty of time. It's all you need. We left Aguas Calientes about 10 o'clock in the morning, and it only takes about a half hour to get up to the landing spot at Machu Picchu. And we had a guide who met us at our at our hostel. You're required to have a guide, and it's a wonderful thing because our guide, had, he's a Quechua man, Quechua 
are the indigenous people of Peru, especially the, the high mountain people. And many of the words that are familiar, like the word kia, rumioc, like I was talking about earlier, those are all Quechua words. <coughs> so he was incredibly knowledgeable, um, not only about the site, but about the, um, the Inca Trail leading to it. He's done that many times along the Inca Trail. He also told us that usually by the time people have gone on the Inca Trail, they get to Machu Picchu, they're so tired they can barely take in everything that's at Machu Picchu. <laughs> but we rode the bus, so we weren't that tired. And yet <laughs> we were able to, to feel the energy. I mean, we were pretty tired because by this time we've we've been on the road for about a week and a half. We've climbed up and down hundreds of stairs and lots of mountainsides, and uh, we weren't sure how we were going to do at Machu Picchu because it's at altitude, and we were already tired. And guess what? There is mm -hmm. enough energy still in that place that it enlivened us, and we had no trouble at all climbing all around those ruins, the stairs, looking at the mountains, it, it's just breathtaking. <clears throat> now, our guide explained to us that Machu Picchu was kind of a university. It was a gathering place for uh, experts in all of the fields of science and astronomy and astrology and agriculture and all the things that were important to the Inca. The stonework um, of the Inca is incredible. <clears throat> you haven't ever seen it. It's so tight. You could not slip the blade of a pen knife in there. You could not slip a piece of paper in there. It, you can see the seam where tones come together, but you can't see how they were put together. There's no mortar, and it has withstood hundreds of years of being in nature. Now, our guide explained to us <clears throat> that the conquistadors had seen the terraces above Machu Picchu, um, but it's on the edge of the jungle. You can't tell this when you're looking at photographs because most of the photographs are of the peaks, and the peaks themselves are pretty barren. But it, when you go through very lush rainforest as you drive from Aguas Caliente on the bus up to Machu Picchu. So he explained that the conquistadors are coming along and they're wearing their, their metal helmets and their metal breastplates and they're riding horses and they look up there. And of course you can imagine uh, as they're moving into the jungle, it's probably kind of steamy and a little warm. It wasn't for us on Machu Picchu, and we were blessed with cloud cover because when, when the sun comes out, you're up so high, it gets really, really intense. But the bottom line was that the Spaniards looked up and they said, oh, there's nothing up there, and they kept going. So that's what saved Machu Picchu. Hmm. I'm I disappeared for a little while while you were talking, so I missed part of what you said. But um, 
I'm not even. You, the last I heard that I, I know for sure that I heard was that you were talking about how you can't tell how the stones were put together. Right. You can't. Now, our guide, I, I have my personal um, opinions, and I will present <laughs> those. Um, I have felt for a long time, and I think there's plenty of evidence to corroborate this, that the Incas knew how to levitate stones into place. I think they knew how to work with sound and vibration in such a way that the solid surfaces of the stones softened, and when you put one on top of the other, they kind of melted together. Now, when we got to Cusco, this is going to jump ahead a little bit. We got to Cusco. There's a place, um, there's a museum on the edge of the Cori Concha, which is the, um, the heart of the city. And what they show you in those stones is they were made kind of like tongue and groove boards. Mm -hmm. So that there were projections from one stone that were mated to um, an empty place in a nearby stone so that they were able to, with, I mean, earthquakes were not going to shake these apart. That's how they have managed to survive so intact over so many years. And I find it wow. incredible that they had that kind of knowledge and technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Inca were only in power, the Inca Empire lasted only a couple hundred years. And in that period of time, the amount of construction they did out of these solid stones throughout Peru and into Bolivia, and we have that here in Ecuador, too. There's a, a sacred site about an hour's drive from Cuenca called Ingapirca that has Inca construction, and it also has Cañari construction. The Cañar are a matrilineal people, that um, were such fierce fighters, they were kicking the Inca butt. And <laughs> so he solved that problem by marrying a princess so that the, the peoples had to learn how to get along together. But you can tell the difference in the quality of the construction, in the knowledge, and uh, in just the workmanship. So I have a, a pretty strong opinion that these were not primitive people. They had advanced technology. Um, where they got it, how they got it, I have ideas. I suspect they were in direct communication with ascended masters, which some people might call extraterrestrial. So this is my personal opinion, and I'm sticking by it. I don't have any evidence to the contrary, or nor do I have a desire to try to uh, sway you otherwise. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. We really don't know. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I don't think anybody does, and so it's all speculation. But I find uh, ordinary people like myself can have a pretty accurate idea of of what might have happened that let's say, intellectuals in other disciplines might uh, scoff at. <laughs> mm. So that was our experience in Machu Picchu. It, it was quite remarkable. And 
mean, everyone, I think, has seen photographs of the ruins, and it's like many places, the experience of being there in the energy and actually seeing it and feeling what's there uh, is so much more profound than the flat level of a of a photograph. It's it's for me it's the value of traveling because when you're in a place it is so much than when you're just seeing it or thinking about it. So it was a very profound experience for us. And uh, we got back, had a lovely train ride back. And they do a really wonderful job on the train in both directions. They give you little snacks. They have um, entertainment. They had uh, someone in the devil out dancing with people up and down the aisle of the train. It was great fun. And they had some beautiful textiles, of course, they were showing, offering to, to sell. So we got back to Oyante Tambo. Our driver met us and took us into Cusco. So now we're we've been doing ceremony in sacred places and exploring um, everything that was along the trail for about uh, ten days, and uh, we have just a few more days in Cusco. So the guide that we had at Machu Picchu was so excellent that we hired him to come into Cusco the next day and guide us around the city. And he did a great job again. So we saw the Cori Concha, which is the big temple area that is the heart of Cusco. Now originally, he says, the, the Cori Concha was surrounded by temples to each of the cultures that had been um, taken over by the Inca. The Inca were unique as far as I know in that when they uh, took over a people, when they dominated them and brought them into the Inca Empire, they did not try to stamp out their culture. They honored their culture, their language, and they did what they could to learn from them. I think that is such an important way of doing things. And, of course, when the Spanish conquistadores came in, they knocked down all of those temples and they knocked off symbols um, from the Inca Empire, Inca perception of spirituality, and they built their cathedrals right on top of <coughs> some of the ruins. There's one particularly large museum that has a huge section of Inca stonework, and then it has... The, the stonework of, of Spanish on top of that. And I'm, I'm still boggled, Phil, that mm -hmm. people that, could, that only were in, in uh, power for a couple hundred years were able to do so much because we know that the, some of the cathedrals in Europe took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to build. And yet the Inca were able to do what they did in, in less than 200 years. So the next day, which was our last day in Cusco, so it was the last day of our pilgrimage before we traveled back to Ecuador, um, we went to Saksiwaman. Saksiwaman is a uh, 
compound high above Cusco. You can see the whole city from there. And it is filled with carvings of sacred animals. I mean, it was a real fortress. And at the very top, there's a place that they call the Eye of the Puma. And it has been carved. It's an eye that has been carved out of stone. And the story is that it is by the top of a huge crystal. So it's an incredibly powerful place, both from its history and its location and its ongoing reverence by the people of Peru. Wonderful energy in Sacsayhuaman. Of course, ceremony at the top. Um, and there, there were incidences along the way of people getting triggered from uh, wounds of the past. One of my women friends who went on this journey uh, worked in corporate America for this in the U.S. And she still has the scars to show, but she said she had to, to fight to be heard as a woman, to be recognized as an authority in her field. And she had learned very strong boundaries in making sure that the men she worked with looked her straight in the eye, gave her appropriate respect. <coughs> and one of the things that happened on the, the, the trip to Sacsayhuaman was that we had a lovely Peruvian man, a spiritual guide, along on the trip, and he wouldn't look her in the eye. And she got really, really upset. Now, those of us observing what would not feel that he intended any disrespect at all, it seemed to be a cultural thing, because there are cultures in which to look somebody in the eye is disrespectful. Mm -hmm. man was very humble, and it also looked like talking to us about the <clears throat> the specialness of Saksi Woman. He was looking into middle space so that he could hear what his heart wanted to say. So there was the difference in perception from those of us observing and, and the charge <clears throat> that was in that was actually had up inside this woman where her hurt was. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> As we progressed along, um, it became quite uncomfortable. She was ready to, to quit. She was ready to, to go back down and let us do the ceremony on our own. And um, my friend and I who were accompanying her knew that we had to let our leader, Susan, and this man work out whatever was going to happen. And what ended up happening was so beautiful, and it's a perfect example of how the personal can become transpersonal. <clears throat> we stood on top of the eye of the puma, the three of us women holding hands to create a sacred circle as the other woman and this man worked together. He asked her forgiveness 
Everybody was in tears. And it wasn't that he had done anything wrong, at least in our perception. It was that it was more important to reestablish the connection and reestablish the bond of trust and the spiritual purity than any ego considerations. So this lovely man asked her forgiveness, which she gave freely and with tears, and then he got down on his knees and asked forgiveness for all the times that men have hurt women without intending to, or even when they did intend to. He didn't. And there are so many wonderful men who were able to move beyond their ego to this place of wanting to be connected and wanting to be in a place of, of love and pure communication. And that's what turned this personal incident into a transpersonal incident. And this is how healing work takes place. It takes place all human. We all have our wounds. We all come to the sacred to heal and to feel connected and to have love restored. And this was a beautiful example of how something could have been devastatingly awful and could have destroyed relationships was transmuted into something that heals not only the present moment, but for, because of our intentions also be used to heal cosmically. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And and isn't that just the most powerful and heart-touching thing to know that when we come with our heart in our hands, when we come with our wounds showing, the universe meets us there always with love. Mm. So this was the last bit of group ceremony that we did, was on top of Saksiwaman, and we were the last ones in the park at the end of the day. The, the guards are blowing whistles trying to get everybody down so they can close the park and go home. We come down, and Susan starts chatting up the guard, and... Um, he was very friendly and helpful and ended up taking a bunch of photos of our group in front of different um, carvings on the way out. So it was really quite a experience. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, get a bit of a feel for some of what you experienced by looking at pictures uh, that are online from uh, Sacsayhuaman. And yes. I I can't even imagine. I mean, looking at the pictures is one thing, but being there? Yes. It's it's like a hundred times different, I'm sure. I think it is. I really think it is. And And the signs and wonders, I mean, they just, they're small things and ordinary things, but they're so impactful. When we were done, as we were climbing down from doing the ceremony on the Eye of the Puma, it was sunset, and the sky was golden. It was just amazing, Phil. It was like the universe was saying, yes! 
so affirming. Mm. There were many ladies uh, during the time that we were in Peru, healing uh, sessions as well. Um, Susan had is a, a trained clarity breath worker, and we had three breath work sessions. She brought in a, a healer to work with the ancient instruments, and he gave us each personal attention. Um, so, oh, I almost forgot something that's really, really important. One of the things that happened during our, our week in Peru was that um, one of my friends has um, several dogs, and they're all very special needs dogs. We're all animal lovers, so you know our fur babies are very important to us. And one of her, it was she was absolutely distraught, and this we this happened to be on November 10th. And I'll tell you tell you why that date is engraved in my mind. We felt her pain so intensely because we were so bonded through all the experiences and the ceremonies. We asked if she would like to have a ceremony for her dog. Because we loved the dogs too. And she did. She wanted to have well, the next day we had the morning clear because that was the afternoon we were heading out to um, Machu Picchu. And we knew it was an important day because it was 11-11. And this year it was 11-11-11 because, the, you know, when you num numerologically you take 2018 down to its base, it's also 11. Mm -hmm. 11 minutes past 11 o'clock in the morning on 11-11-11, we were in ceremony for this dog, creating amulets, appreciating everything that had happened. Um, so on this most powerful manifesting day of the decade, we were in ceremony, and we might have missed it if it hadn't been that this dog chose that time to pass. So we mm. honored him as a teacher. We honored him as a guide because we might have missed it. We might have been walking around or packing for the next move or whatever it was without being aware that this was a really important moment, astrologically speaking, energetically speaking, for us to connect deeply. It was just incredible. I don't think any of us will ever forget that, Bill. And it's it's the sort of thing, you know, it's like ordinary things that are not ordinary. Mm. So we're still integrating the ways in which we've changed. I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks since we've been back, and the energies are still swirling. Um, the the sacred items that I brought back have created a new healing mesa. I have been given instructions by the spirits to to do at least 
two more special healing ceremonies next year, one for soul retrieval, one for create, uh, completing soul contracts. Um, I've been given some assignments on my for my spiritual work, things that I, I'm to be doing to show up as who I'm supposed to be this lifetime and what my service is to the world this lifetime. And it's a wonderful feeling. I feel affirmed. I feel stretched. I feel like parts of me have come home that might have been missing before, and parts of myself that have been waiting to express are now having their voice and finding the outlet for the expression. And this is important for me. So, as you know, I love to write the stories about life that includes ceremonial work, that includes energy and intention and vibration in how people perceive reality. A lot of what I experienced will go into um, my next book. I think when you and I spoke last, um, I had two books out. The third book is complete and out to beta readers, and the fourth book has been started. And I've been told by the spirits that these are both entertainment and instruction. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to just keep doing it. So my passions have melted together. My passion for spiritual work and my passion for stories. I feel like one of the luckiest women in the, on the planet at this time. Mm. Uh, I am very glad for you. I'm glad for you and everybody that was on that journey with you. It sounds like it was such an amazing experience. Yes. Yes, it really was. And it, it was the subtlety and the power. And some things appear to be subtle, but they're so profound you get them right away. And then some things you get just a little bit past it and go, oh, wait a minute, I saw that. And that's when mm. I think that you, you observe the spirits showing off. It's just, wow. It's <laughs> really all I can say. Wow. <laughs> well, I hope I've conveyed some of the impact because it certainly has been that profound for all of us. We knew it was going to be. We had been told by the spirits that this was going to be a really important journey. And we may not understand the full impact of it for some time. Mm. But it was a privilege yeah. and miraculous. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, my little voyeuristic piggyback ride during your conversation, you know, telling us about it tonight doesn't even begin to uh, uh, come to a realization of your experience. I I know that, but it's just, you know, I feel like I kind of got a little bit of a peek, you know, by taking advantage of modern technology 
while you're journeying through the ages there <laughs> and and you know looking at Google Maps and pulling up images of uh, the Puma's eye or eye of the Puma, pardon me, and uh, the various other places and things that you were talking about. It's like, wow. And this is just an inkling of what it was that you and everybody else in your group experienced. Yes, exactly. And this is another thing that it's good for us to keep in mind, Phil, Um, As I understand it, all of the things that we can do with technology these days all imitate the things that we as humans are capable of doing without the technology. The connection, the telepathy, Mm. um, the, the vast knowledge. I mean, the Internet is so wonderful in, in all that we can learn just by doing research on it. And like everything that's powerful, it, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And we have the choice. So, you know, we have to use discernment in the ways that we get the most benefit out of the Internet, but the ways that we also protect ourselves from becoming addicted to it or um, indulging in things that are not helpful for either ourselves or our family. Hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm 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 getting lost again in the map in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we can go. I mean, we can go places via the internet that many many of us will never be able to see in person. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many amazing and beautiful places on this planet. Some of them are kind of hard to get to, and some of us don't have the, the freedom, don't have the time, don't have the money, don't have the explanation. Personally, I want to see everything, but I have to kind of pick and choose. Yeah, I... Uh... I sent you a picture on Facebook while we've been talking that is um, trying to remember here. The photographer is from the Netherlands. He was at Machu Picchu, took this beautiful picture, and I found in uh, the Incan tongue the translation of the... uh, of Article One of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Really? And I took that in uh, Quechua. Is that how you say it? Yes. I took that in you know in the transliteration you know using our alphabet, but it's there. Superimposed that over the picture with the English translation underneath. And I did oh, that nice. well over a year ago. Uh, when I was preparing for the release of my third novel in my series of uh, Dark of the Moon, New Beginnings, which starts out at an archaeological dig outside of Lima, Peru. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So you have a connection to Peru as well. Uh, um, 
used to hang over my desk, but I've moved my desk since. I have an original painting from a friend of mine in uh, uh, Seattle, Washington, of uh, her interpretation of Pachamama. Ooh, nice. And it's just this little, you know, uh, pine plaque of wood that she painted on, but it's a gorgeous image. And I just had to have it. Uh, Luckily... Everything was in the proper places about this time last year to make it happen, so I I purchased it from her, and it has been in the same place on the wall ever since, even though the desk has moved. Uh, I've kind of got a little altar space set up over there now, but uh, yeah, it's just when I stumbled across you, I don't even really remember how I found you online. Or if you found me or what, we just, boom, we, we we connected. I know, and I don't remember how we did it either. It's like I could probably scroll through the the uh, messages that we've exchanged on Facebook and try to figure it out, but wow, that would take, would take a while <laughs> here. Well, let's see here. April 9th of last year is the first message. But that is not our first conversation because that was the night that we had you on the show before. Has it been that long? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've known you forever, Phil, and it's a good (laughs) feeling. I love connecting with like-minded people. You know, even though we might have slight differences in whatever tradition we follow, the fact that we are connected with nature and connected with divine source connects us with each other. And mm-hmm. this is my favorite tribe. Actually, this is a tribe that I write for, too, because I know that spiritual people often like to have to enjoy entertainment that... Um, supports their spirituality, that gives them some new insights and uh, has the kind of vibration that that makes them feel good. So it's a privilege to be on your show. Well, it's it's, it's a privilege to have you on the show. You've Everybody that we have on the show has a different and unique perspective on life on all aspects of it, but on spirituality in particular. And by being able to share in that, even if just for a couple of hours in conversation here on the show, it's such an amazing experience that I I feel totally blessed to be able to do this. Well, I think it's a real gift to all of us. And and it is good for us to, to find the commonalities amongst our differences and know that we're much more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I are talk you, a little bit mm-hmm. about my book? Go, no, no. Oh, no, certainly. Please do. I just made sure that I had uh, your your Amazon author page link put into the show description for tonight. So, so yes, please, please do. (laughs) (laughs) 
I I enjoy writing these books so much. It's to me, it's almost like channeling a story. It's also like visioning probabilities. So as the story tells itself to me, it's like okay, what where energy wanting to go with this? What is the most likely or unlikely thing to happen in this scenario? And so it's a sort of a of a spiritual practice for me writing these and I'm very gratified when the readers well for example I had a a reader of my first book say she'd had a a terrible day and as soon as she settled into bed picked up my book and snuggled under the covers a sense of calm and peace went over her now that's the sort of thing that makes me feel really good mm-hmm. I've had <laughs> I've had another reader say that she's been so discouraged, and she'd read the first two books. She said she's been so discouraged by all the things that are going on in the world. And so she's a beta reader for book three, which is going to come out next year. And she said after she read that book, first of all, she says this one's the best yet, and it gives me hope in spite of the fact that that book had um, more destruction and devastation in it than the others. Uh, she could feel that there was a movement towards hope in the story, and that that's exciting for me. So I'm I'm starting work on book four now, and uh, my characters have are now come. Some of my characters are coming down to Ecuador, so I'm tying together. The, the spiritual work in North America, the spiritual work in South America. And as usual, I'm not really sure where it's going because they don't tell me the whole story ahead of time. They only tell me the next bit so that I can do that. And then I that and then they say, okay, now we'll tell you the next bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite also, familiar with how the characters work that way. <laughs> yeah, so your characters do that to you too? I had no clue where I was going when I started that that book that I was talking about that had the the dig outside of Lima. I had no clue where those characters were going. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to read your book so I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I I also decided this year <clears throat> that um, I'm going to relaunch the series. The original series title was Energy Unveiled. And apparently um, it wasn't clear enough to give people an idea of the content. So the new series title is The Shaman Chronicles. And book one um, was first published as The Crystalline Vision. Book two is published as Protective Force. Both of those are still available on Amazon. And they will be um, under those titles until... I launched the whole series, which will be sometime next year. And then book one is going to become um, Protectors of the Vision. Book two is um, Protectors of the Path. Um, Book three is Protectors of the Gifts. And uh, I won't tell you book four's title yet. (laughs) But I think think you're going to love them. They've got new, new covers. And I'm just trying to make them 
transparent enough so that the people that want them will know how to find them. Mm. Yeah, it's always a um, interesting experiment, if you will, to uh-huh. re-release the series. It's like, how yes. is this going to happen? How how is this going to change things? Uh, are are people going to find it more readily? Are people going to enjoy it the same or more? Mm-hmm. Which we always hope they you know they're going to find it more readily. They're going to enjoy it at least as well, if not more so, than they would have before. Yes, I think I think it's about getting clear about what the content is, <clears throat> and mm. um, I've I've been told that. Um, my books will do the best through word of mouth, um, and that's been my experience so far. As um, somebody reads the books and loves them, then they tell somebody else, and you know the word gets around. And I'm in really good company because that's how um, the Celestine prophecy got started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I've read all of those books. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and more than once. <laughs> well, they're they're very similar and you know, Dan Brown's books too, the um oh, especially the first ones, um they're very similar. They're they're stories and they're suspenseful so they keep you entertained, but there's also an awful lot of information in there. Mm-hmm. I mean real information about spiritual matters and how the spiritual matters um, are intertwined with um, the politics of the time, the economics of the time, um, with history and because you can't you can't take any story out of context and have it make sense. Mm-hmm. Another thing that um, has been tied in with this whole journey for me and with my practice as um, an energy and vibrational healer um, is ancestral healing. I've been studying with Daniel Four, who has a, a wonderful course on the Shift Network online, and I and several friends are really digging deep into this practice of working to heal our lineages um, because this is something concrete that we can do to help what's going on in the world today. Trauma has been accumulating in human lineage for hundreds of years. Colonization, slavery, um, all the things that have gone on even before the Roman conquest. Um, maybe back to the Viking conquest. I don't know when it all started. But we know how much how much war, how much um, how many different forms of tortures and genocide have been perpetrated, particularly against indigenous peoples everywhere, but we're all indigenous to start with. Um, and to honor what has gone on before and to work with some of our more ancient healing guides to 
to bring harmony and peace to troubled lineages <clears throat> is one of the best ways to counter racism, misogyny, um, greed, all the, well, PTSD. With all the wars that we've had, even in the last couple of hundred years, if you think about it, that trauma is going from soldier to the soldier's family to to the sons who were inducted into armies and who had to kill and be and experience all the traumas of warfare. <coughs> the the witch trials in Europe and every place else that did so much damage amongst all the healers and medicine work. <coughs> Those things do not go away. They have to be healed. And this ancestral healing work is a direct, intentional way to try to bring about healing of some of these past traumas so that the lineages that are now suffering the most from them can find ease and peace. Oh no, you're fine. You, you've been pretty much talking nonstop for the majority of the show tonight, so I'm surprised you haven't coughed more. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I have been full of words, haven't I? <laughs> mm, which is perfectly fine. This is, you know, tonight is to showcase you and what you have been doing this year. Thank you. You know, your pilgrimage well, and the I, release of the books and all that. And taking advantage of what you're saying, I've been looking things up, like finding Daniel Flores' website, which is ancestralmedicine.org, for anybody who may be interested out there. Uh, he does have one book that's available through Amazon, but you can find that also through his website. Yeah, it's amazing. Powerful work. And it's bringing us together. It's bringing people together across boundaries of, I mean, the, all the artificial boundaries. Because we all came, we're all human, and we all came from a similar source. The the differences <clears throat> that are being magnified, they're artificial. Skin color, body shape, gifts, I mean, all of these things... <clears throat> are constructs that people have created in order to create division and to keep control of masses of people. And if we're going to be free, we have to recognize that we're all the same and our hearts all bleed <coughs> when we suffer. We've got to be compassionate. We've got to find... And sometimes we have to learn to be compassionate with ourselves first, Phil. Mm. We've not been taught how to really love ourselves. It's not selfishness. It's healthy centeredness in who we are. And when everybody loves and takes care of themselves, they're not so needy. They're not so traumatized. And we can help each other. <clears throat> and it's really important that we do it, especially now when there's so much division and so much fear um, being propagated all around the world. I mean, it's heartbreaking 
to see whole countries being devastated because <clears throat> the quote first wants to have oil. So let's bomb the hell out of the Middle East. Let's kill all the Syrian people or whoever it is that going on all around the world. I mean, genocides have been perpetrated against every race of people, every, every skin color, every origin, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe thousands. I mean, we've mm -hmm. lost that history. And the history that we think we know has been changed by the people that won. Whether they were the good guys or the bad guys, whether they won because they were more brutal and less moral, they still are rewriting the history books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, history is uh, written by the victors. Yes, exactly. And the kindness and the caring that has been found amongst, quote, ordinary people is what they It has to be a grassroots thing. Nobody is going to come along from the top to save humanity. If it's going to be saved, it's going to be out to find the technologies and to be love in the world. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, I keep having to hit mute myself. I think I'm coughing for you. <laughs> well, you've, you've hidden it very well. <laughs> uh, now, uh, what you were just talking about there and you know how people need to realize what it is that is going on and has gone on and will go on and all that actually made me remember a quote from Auntie Mame. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> Life is a banquet, and most poor sons of bitches are starving to death. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> and we don't have to. Mm -hmm. And we may not be starving for physical food so much as emotional food and spiritual food and the sense of, of belonging and having place and having purpose. Just the privilege to be alive, mm -hmm. to be breath, breathing. It's a miracle in itself. It's amazing how many great quotes came out of Patrick Dennis. Sorry. Easily distracted there sometimes. I'm like, wow, how many how many more wonderful things came out of that man's head? Um. I love that movie. <laughs> Quite honestly, Mame has been one of my role models, and I'm very grateful to her, <laughs> or to him for creating Yeah, I um, almost forgot where I was going there. Wow, thoughts derailed. It happens. <laughs> Last scene headed towards the border. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, wow. 
yeah, here's a quote that I'm going to have to remember uh, from Patrick Dennis and Auntie Mame. Oh, darling, you know we writers must occasionally stretch a point to heighten the dramatic situation. <laughs> just a tad. We have to stretch it just a tad. Mm-hmm. So uh, your plans next year are to uh, to finish with the books and re-release the entire series with the uh, the new t- uh, series title, and right. to continue doing what it is that you do. And of course, the spirits gave you a couple of assignments while yeah. you were on your pilgrimage and while you've been digesting your experience from that pilgrimage. Exactly. And they're continuing to talk to me. <clears throat> and, you know, the signs are there. As soon as I got back, um, a couple of people asked, <clears throat> asked for me to, to do clearings on them and immediately felt lighter and a better able to cope with what was going on in their lives and felt more centered and grounded. So I show up and I facilitate the work for people who are ready to heal themselves because their healing guides are already bringing them to the right place and it just works. Yes, definitely. Um, I suppose since we are getting kind of close to the end of our time here for tonight's show, uh, now would be a good opportunity for you to share any, you know, any insights or information or whatever that you really want to share with those who may be listening. Either something from your your journey along the Sacred Valley of Peru, or um, from your experiences in what it was that has been happening to you in the last year because this last year 2018 has been such a profound year for so many people it's just wow so I'll let you say however you wish to say and whatever it is you wish to say thank you Um, well one of my assignments is Right now, my my website is focused entirely on the books, um, and I've been told that I have to to put up more information about ceremonies and healing work um, on the same website so that people can choose what's most meaningful for them at that particular moment. So I will be updating the website. Um, Meanwhile, my website is my name, barbarasnow.com, and you can reach me there if you want any kind of healing work. Um, I work around the world. That's one of the benefits of technology. Um, and my passion is to encourage people to bring ceremony into their own lives. When you do a little ritual or a big ritual, it acknowledges the sanctity of your life. It adds layers of meaning to any experience that you're going through. 
Um, it could be an experience of loss. It could be an experience of growth. It could be simply a move or a, a transition from one state to another. But when we honor those, we're honoring our own journeys, our own journeys as souls incarnate in a human body. Just being alive is sacred. It's sacred work. Everything that we do um, impacts us and impacts all the people around us. When we celebrate life with ceremony, we raise the vibration in our lives. We raise the vibration of the people that we come in contact with. And the higher that we raise our vibration, the more joy we have, the greater our chances for healing and self-expression and prosperity and abundance. So when your intention is to live your life as fully as you can and you embrace ceremony in that intention, you increase your aliveness, you increase your impact for on your own loved ones, your friends and family and your neighbors, and you increase your impact in the world. And sometimes that means that you're given a bigger venue. When Spirit says, I want you to do this, that, and the other, and you go do this, that, and the other, and Spirit says, oh, I can trust you. Here, do this, and you go and do that. And then you get another assignment. Sometimes the assignment is just to be the best you that you can be. And then sometimes the assignment is to be the best you that you can be in front of other people. And it doesn't really matter. It's you showing up as you. But I really invite you to consider your intention for being alive, your intention for being who you are to your family and your community. I invite you to deepen your relationship with great mystery, great spirit, whatever you call the divine source, and all of the spirit beings that surround us in this reality. Because everything is alive. And everything loves you. That is the miracle. The fact that we are on this little blue ball spinning in this vastness of space. And this little blue ball loves us so much that we have the right mixture of oxygen and carbon monoxide and all whatever else goes into oxygen for us to breathe. The temperatures, the fact that there's sunshine in the daytime and that there's moonlight at night, the fact that there's water around us and that we are such a large percentage of water, the fact that plants grow everywhere to feed us and heal us and also to maintain the balance of oxygen. It's a miracle. The planet itself is a miracle. Our lives on the planet are miracles. And when you embrace the miraculous nature of reality, it becomes more fun, it becomes more miraculous, and all kinds of cool things happen. 
So that's my sermon for tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. All kinds of cool things can happen. I like that there. That's probably the best way to to put it all. (laughs) Yeah, that's a highly technical (laughs) phrase. Well, just like a friend of mine would probably call that a Honolulu. Not a hallelujah, a Honolulu. Honolulu. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really like that. (laughs) And it's a wonderful time of year for us to be doing this. It's It's a great time of year to stay grounded in our connection to nature, not to get swept up in stuff that doesn't matter, but to celebrate the connections that make our hearts sing and that make us uh, happy to be alive and happy to be human. Well, I think I mentioned this the last time that you were on, but I'm going to mention it again. I have a feeling that I will probably be sending you portions to read just to get your feedback of one of the projects that I have lined up for uh, next year, which is a working title called Embracing the Divine Within. Ooh, I would love that. And I would like to send you... um a draft. I'm writing a book on ceremony, what it is, how to structure it, how easy it is to do, and uh, the benefits that it brings to your life. So I'd like to get your feedback on that manuscript as well, and maybe we can, um, between us, offer some new insights to to your wonderful listeners. Maybe, maybe. And speaking of new things that are coming in for our listeners out there, um, this coming Sunday afternoon, our my new co-host and I are going to be getting some training time on some brand new equipment, at least to us. Um, wow. We are... Uh, going to be partnering up with the uh, with a local community radio station that has a podcast studio, you know, professional grade equipment, sound room instead of well, I'm sitting in my living room with a uh, you know a headset microphone thing and a cat that apparently wants something from me because she's walking back and forth in front of me. On the desk, going, what's going on? But uh, yeah, uh, Crow is uh, what he goes by. He is uh, with the Order of the Red Grail Church for Transformational Wicca here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he and I have been tossing around the idea for quite a while of doing a show together. And Uh with uh, the necessity of change that comes with life, uh, it seems like that's definitely going to be happening. Uh, probably be uh, right after the first of the year that we do our first official broadcast that way, which also means we probably won't be doing live shows anymore. Okay. So you're which is a bit of an unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. I have only seen the inside of this studio that we'll be using. I haven't touched any of the equipment yet. So I don't know what the capabilities will be. Well, I have a feeling that because um, your podcast is a form of service, 
that there are going to be doors opening for you and um, new opportunities. Hmm. Uh, thank you for that vote of confidence. <laughs> uh, You're welcome. <laughs> definitely wanted to give our uh, listeners a bit of a heads up for that. Uh, and want to thank you, Barbara, for being on the show uh, for your second visit. Uh, just to remind our listeners out there, you can find Barbara's website. Uh, it's her name, barbarasnow.com. Pretty easy. Um, and uh, go through our show description here on BTR, and you can also find the link to that, as well as to uh, the Amazon page with all your books on it. Woo! Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, as my coughing comes back, there we go. Hmm. Mute, mute. Very wonderful button to have <laughs> on the headphones. Uh, Going to send everybody out with a piece of music. I've been debating between three different songs by the same artist. Been debating between uh, Sisters Waiting, mm-hmm. The Song of Atonement, Ooh. and The Goddess of Letting Go. Oh, All I three think are my... by Mama Gina. I, I think the goddess of letting go. Okay. So that's what we're going to go out with. Again, thank you, Barbara, for uh, joining me tonight, and I wish you nothing but the best in the future. Thank you so much, Phil. I've thoroughly enjoyed being on your show again, and I thank all your listeners, and I send you all many blessings. And you have yourself a blessed night. I'm going to hit play on the music and check your messenger on Facebook when you get the chance. I sure will. Brushing the knots from her beautiful hair, the knots that the fairy tied. A world between us, though we both breathe the air. One of us drifts in the night. So go on and ask me your questions, child. The answers you already know. Tonight she will walk with the goddess, the goddess of letting go. Taking her hand in the moment, the moment is now and it's here. The past and the future beyond our control in this ending. There's nothing to fear. So go on and ask for directions, child. The path is one you will know. Tonight we all walk with the goddess, the goddess of letting go. As light as a soul, she was born to. Nothing to bind her The demons she battles now gather as friends. The wisdom is perfectly clear. So go on and make your way homeward. What you need, you already know. Tonight we all walk with the goddess, the goddess of letting. Night we all walk with the 
Tonight we all walk with the God in 